Um, warm welcome to you. Uh, I hope you're going to enjoy this session. Let's just start with a word of prayer, shall we? Father, thank you for the folk that are organizing this conference. Thank you for bringing us safely here. And we do pray, Father, that you be the one who speaks to us, leads us, and guides us during our time here this afternoon. In Jesus' name. Amen. My name is uh, Philip Wood. Can you put it up a little bit? My name is Philip Wood. I'm a surgeon. I've been working uh, for most of the last 40 years in the middle of Africa in Congo. Zaire, you can just see it outlined uh, on the map there. My wife is here. She's also a physician. She's uh, from Canada. I'm originally from UK. And uh, we'd be very, very happy to speak to any of you afterwards uh, if you've got any any questions which don't come up in the question time. We've got a lot to show you, so I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, to uh, move straight on. To start off with some definitions, what is uh, a resource-poor setting? Is it a lack of doctors, lack of specialist trained doctors, lack of nurses, lack of ancillary staff, minimal funding, lack of administration, lack of infrastructure, lack of honesty, all of the above? What's your choice? What's your choice? Um, I think in some ways I, I made a bit of a mistake. Uh, I have been thinking for some time that one of our biggest needs in Congo is a lack of specialist trained doctors. We have an increasing number of young Congolese doctors, but unfortunately they've not had very much of an education, mostly with a blackboard piece of chalk and uh, not much in the way of a library. But uh, another huge lack that we have is a lack of administration. Um, very, very difficult to find a hospital in Africa that is really well administered. Now, one or two, yes, uh, I can think of one run by an ancillary nurse doing a fantastic job. Another uh, run by a fellow called Dr. McQuaggy, who was uh, nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. But these folk are few and far between. Um, Another definition, trauma, trauma surgery. Let me just tell you a little bit about my story. Um, I've been working in Congo. It's a very insecure kind of place. There are too many guns there at the moment. We've had five million deaths in the country since 1994. Uh, it's been called the first African World War. Uh, we've been providing partisan, non-partisan emergency care for anybody, whether they're rebels or whether they're their, their government troops, but on the 5th of September 2002, uh, we got invaded, and um, it was a pretty traumatic time. I'd been doing ward rounds in the hospital, decided about 9 o'clock in the morning that uh, we would start surgery. We had several cases for operation. I go to the operating room, and they said, uh, well, we need to do some more autoclaving. Uh, we'll start at 10 o'clock. So I went home for a cup of coffee, and Almost spot on 9 o'clock, people started pouring in from both sides of the valley. Uh, Bullets were whizzing around all over the place. Uh, I quickly closed all the curtains in the house. Uh, One or two people joined me there, and uh, we just laid low as much as we could. 11.30 in the morning, very, very heavy banging on the back door. I go to the back door there, and there's some heavily armed rebels there. And uh, they said to me, uh, open the door. I said, I'm very sorry, I can't open the door. They said, we'll break it down. I said, fine, you can break the door down, but I'm afraid I can't open it. They said, uh, give us some money. 
I said, uh, we've made it a policy not to keep money in the house. I'm sorry, I can't give you any money, but I can pray for you. So I stood there at the window, and I prayed a very long prayer, and they went away. And uh, they didn't come back again. <laughs> uh, the next day, MAF, Mission Aviation Fellowship, uh, could arrange to bring in a plane, and we were able to, to leave. Uh, the hospital, they tried to keep it going, uh, but eventually uh, nobody wanted to come for for help there, and um, uh, the whole place was abandoned for some 18 months. So since then, we've had a lot of unrest in Congo, and uh, I've dealt with quite a lot of bullet wounds and other trauma in Congo. But if we are talking about resource-poor surgery, it, it, it doesn't mean it's necessarily bad surgery. It's just a different type of surgery. We do a lot of open surgery, uh, not uh, laparoscopic keyhole surgery. Uh, takes longer for patients to get over it, but they don't seem to mind too much. Uh, it means they have a longer stay in hospital. Uh, I do a few hernia operations. I say, well, now today you can go home. They say, no, no, we want to stay until stitches come out because uh, family's feeding me and I'm enjoying it here in the hospital. I just as soon stay. So we do use uh, some different techniques to some extent, uh, reusable supplies. Uh, we use solar energy wherever we can. We have a chlorinator, which I'll show you in a moment. And you need to use your clinical judgment. You've got to take the best possible history that you can. You've got to do the best possible physical examination that you can. And then you've got to use your gray cells and you've got to decide what's all this about because you can't refer the case to anybody else. And you have to really think about it. Of course, the possibilities for research are enormous. Uh, we're seeing a lot of very interesting diseases which you don't find in many other parts of the world. We're there in the middle of the forest, middle of the jungle, if you like. Um, this is one of the best operating rooms in northeast Congo. But uh, big uh, solar-powered operating room lights and really quite a nicely arranged operating theater. So it's different surgery, but it's not necessarily bad surgery. We have a chlorinator in the hospital now, and we use salt. We electrolyze salt with a 12-volt car battery, and uh, that produces chlorine, and that's the way we can purify the water that's used in the hospital and used by the patients. Autoclaves on a... Uh, a charcoal brazier and uh, uh, things coming out of that will be equally sterile as, as um, from, from a much larger autoclave. We do whatever we can under spinal anesthesia or uh, some form of anesthetic block, although we do have uh, other forms of anesthesia if necessary. And uh, when I say resource poor, Part of the world, we organized a scientific day for all of the doctors in town, um, and I was just amazed at the number of laptops that suddenly appeared, and all of the doctors appeared with their, with their laptops. Here we are in the middle of Congo, and uh, everybody's using their laptop. Intensive care. Now, uh, that, it's a little bit better than that uh, today. But uh, that's intensive care. It doesn't look much like intensive care in this part of the world, does it? But it's the place where you put your sickest patients, and it's the place where you put your best nurses, and it's the place where people are going to get the best 
possible care. Now, uh, trauma surgery is a huge, huge subject, and uh, we could go on forever and ever. But I want to talk about three areas. Um, I want to talk about skin grafts. I want to talk a little bit about fractures and orthopedics, and a little bit about head injuries as well. So we start off with skin grafts. And uh, here's an illustration taken from a book called Primary Surgery. And uh, I would strongly recommend uh, uh, this book. Maybe not everybody uh, enjoys it as much as I do, but I find it tremendously helpful. Now, you can find this on, online. Uh, it's freely available. There's the, uh, there's the, uh, the um, address for it, and I'll show you that again at the end. But uh, you can download uh, chapters from this book as a PDF file um, for your free use and some marvelous tips in there. And here you are doing skin grafts uh, with a piece of razor blade, uh, local anesthetic, and you can cut off quite large uh, split skin grafts just using a razor blade, or you can use pinch grafts and a hypodermic needle and a scalpel blade or a razor blade there. If you make all your pinch grafts in a row, you can excise that piece of skin and then just sew it up and you'll have a nice neat scar there which will be almost invisible. So here's a, a patient uh, with a fairly extensive burn and uh, we've been putting some, some small skin grafts on that which we've taken with a razor blade. Now you, you can take uh, screen grafts with, with just a regular razor. It depends how good a razor it is. If, you, if, it's, if it's a nice uh, western-made razor, then you'll need to file down the guard. Here's, here's the guard uh, on the, on the, underneath the, the razor blade, which stops you when you're shaving. It stops you from, from cutting your skin. It enables you to shave the hair and nothing else. But if you file it down so the blade is much more visible, then you will start cutting skin rather than just cutting hair. That's what you do with a, with a good razor. But if you're buying a, a cheap African razor, which is made in China, you can probably just bend that guard down a little bit, and that'll give you exactly the same effect. And so you've exposed more of the razor blade. Um, you need to sterilize the razor blade. You're going to sterilize the razor. You're going to sterilize the razor blade. Don't leave the ra razor blade in uh, an antiseptic solution for too long. It'll go rusty if it's an old uh, Chinese razor blade. Um, you need to press fairly hard when you're taking the skin graft. If you want to take a slightly thinner skin graft, then you lubricate the skin with some sterile gel to reduce the thickness of the graft. And then when you've taken your graft off, you put it into a sterile saline solution. This is a slightly more sophisticated instrument which takes a, a razor blade. And here you can see the, uh, the little way of adjusting the thickness of the graft that you're taking with a razor blade there. Um, another view of the same machine, you can see the razor blade that's uh, um, held inside there. So there are quite a few difficulties with skin grafts. Um, it might be a question of infection prior to taking the skin graft. It might be a question that you've got a very large area that you're trying to, to graft. 
might be a question of donor site infection, pain management, loss by infection, contraction of split skin grafts, and keloid formation. If we look at some of these difficulties, first of all, uh, preoperative infection. And uh, there's uh, some lovely granulation tissue, and uh, I, I like to just put a skin graft straight on, on top of that granulation tissue, provided you can be fairly certain there's not too much infection there. Now, the way we deal with infection is to leave the, the wound open and to encourage the patient to wash over the wound with antiseptic soap, with uh, foaming soap and, and lots of water. Now, it stings. It, it, it does hurt. Um, but we want to encourage them to get working on, on the skin graft because after we've done the, working on the ulcer that we're going to graft, because after we've done the skin graft, then they're going to have to help us as well with post-operative management. And if they've got used to cleaning it themselves pre-operatively, they'll do a much better job post-operatively. So here's that same ulcer, which has been grafted. Um, we will have put a dressing on that probably in the operating room. That's a very convenient place to put a dressing. And uh, leave the dressing on if it looks clean and healthy, leave it on for five days if we can. When you take it off, then now, it, again, it needs soap and water. These skin grafts obviously don't contain any sweat glands, so they can dry out and they can crack very, very easily. So they do need to be kept humid after you've put the skin graft on. Here's another one, just uh, seven days post-operatively and that needs soap and water now. This is a, a nurse, came to me, came about a thousand kilometers from way up north, from Bondo, and uh, he'd had this grafted before, and it hadn't taken too well, but we got him washing it preoperatively, and uh, this is what it looked like uh, soon after we took, took the uh, dressing off from, uh, after surgery, and he was extremely pleased, and it's healed up extremely well. So, uh, I make a strong plea for antiseptic soap and water. Open treatment of grafts and burns under a mosquito net. Keep it humid, half strength, normal saline, salt solution. Now, you can make that yourself. It doesn't have to be sterile. You want to make it with uh, clean drinking water and uh, something like a spoonful of salt in one liter of, of water. The patient needs to clean the wound frequently before sur surgery with soap and water, or if you've got it, I mean in a shower, and clean it after surgery. The patient removes all the yellow crusts or exudates with Q-tips. Now, you can make your own Q-tips, uh, just uh, some wooden sticks and uh, wind some, some cotton around it. Again, it doesn't have to be sterile, uh, but it should be clean, obviously. And uh, you encourage the patient, you give them a good supply of these things and encourage them to remove any kind of yellow exudate serum that collects uh, on, the, on the skin graft uh, post-operatively. And then uh, soap foam and clean water on the graft five days post-operatively. Here's a fairly large area that needed to be grafted. Um, this is actually a Beruli ulcer. 
it's an ulcer due to a mycobacterium. It's quite common in our part of the world, but not so common, uh, pretty well unheard of in this part of the world. It's actually an infection of the subcutaneous tissue, but the skin over the top of the ulcer dies, so you have this very, very large extensive ulcer. And you need something to expand your graft, if you possibly can, and this is an expander. Uh, You wind your graft through this expander, and it cuts little slits in it, so you can make a small graft go a little bit further. Uh, Down below is our uh, neat little instrument with a razor blade. Here's a Humby knife with a disposable blade, but it's always difficult to find disposable blades. Um, Yeah, the stock's run out. We've used the last one, and uh, uh, the knife often is not available. So this is what uh, that same lady looked like after we'd done the grafting. We didn't put any kind of dressing on top of it there, and uh, this is five days post-operatively, and this is three weeks post-operatively, and she's healing up quite nicely, and those areas where we've expanded the graft are filled in quite nicely. Yes, there are some areas that are not fully grafted, and uh, that'll take some time for that to heal up completely. Another case, a young fellow with a a bad burn on his back, and uh, again, several skin grafts, and uh, doing quite well. Now, we're talking about difficulties of skin grafting and burns, and uh, pain management is a major problem amongst children. Uh, Putting on big dressings, taking them off is extremely painful. And these poor kids uh, get quite frightened when a doctor comes comes anywhere near them because they're frightened that they're going to have some more pain. And it's really something that we need to take very seriously. And maybe using low-dose intravenous Valium, low-dose intravenous ketamine, or some other uh, analgesic. But uh, it is a major problem. But it's a reason for thinking of um, leaving a wound open and not putting too many dressings on it because it's the dressings change which is so painful. Here's an example where a graft is being lost completely because of post-operative infection. Um, probably the dressing, a dressing was put on this after a skin graft was, was placed there. The dressing was left on a bit too long. And uh, I would prefer this to have been left open and for the patient to have been actively involved in keeping this thing clean. But that skin graft is probably going to be lost completely and it'll be some time before the the ulcer is ready for another grafting. So infection, pus, under or beside the graft will kill the graft. Warm, humid, dark conditions encourage infection, but light, relative dryness, not too much dryness and oxygen, discourage bacteria, avoid the accumulation of grease, avoid uh, crusting and ointments which can become infected. Now, you can have exactly the same problem with the donor site. This is an area where we've taken some skin grafts from, and uh, that can get infected, and this partial thickness Uh, loss of skin can become full thickness if you allow infection 
in an area like that. So again, uh, don't leave the, the dressing on too, too long. Take it off and get the patient to keep that clean with soap and water and leave it open. Uh, this was an enormous problem. This was a gasoline burn and uh, both legs completely uh, circumferential burn. Uh, we've had to make a couple of incisions there through the, um, the escar tissue to, uh, to prevent a tourniquet-like effect and a, a, a cutting of the circulation there. Um, we've suspended both legs with uh, Steinman pins through the ankles and through the tibial tuberosities. But this was an enormous problem and uh, um, almost required amputation. Young kitty fallen in the fire and uh, bad burn of the forehead. Now, putting a dressing on that is very difficult, so we just laid our skin graft straight on top of that. You can see again that not all the skin graft is taken. There's an area um, on the, on the right-hand side which hasn't taken too, too well. We put splints on the arm so that the kitty can't um, put his hands up and, and make a mess of the skin graft. But this child did, did very well. So the open treatment of skin grafts and of burns is not a new idea. Um, July the 1st, 1905... A paper here from 2008 from Sierra Leone. Overall, the open exposed method has uh, had as good or better early outcomes and closed method at significantly lower costs and is recommended treatment for burns in this particular type of environment. Cochrane assessment of 26 trials concluded that sulfur, silver sulfadiazine cream increased the time taken for a wound to heal. And we recommend antiseptic soak and clean water under a mosquito net. Another young girl with epilepsy fell in the fire. And uh, the big problem here is the, is the eyes. Uh, we've done a full thickness graft of both upper eyelids with skin from the, just behind the ears. Uh, there she is with her eyes open. There she is with her eyes closed. Is that okay? All right? No. No, not all right? Better than it was, but not all right. Well, this is a disaster, actually, uh, because, uh, unfortunately, that's what it looked like three weeks later. And, uh, no, that's, uh, that's our fault. I mean, we didn't recognize that um, the, the left eye was going to have uh, so much problem closing, but that's just uh, as a result of exposure, and she's lost her left eye just because of exposure there. So... Uh, We've treated quite a number of patients uh, with burns, by exposure, split skin grafts, laid on granulations with no supplementary dressings, and the patient keeps them moist with half-strength saline. Uh, the standard treatment in the United States might be uh, dressings which are designed to apply gentle pressure. Fluid collections under grafts are immediately evacuated. Antibacterial dressings are used to cover fresh autografts. And, um, uh, but nevertheless, people are saying an increased understanding of the wound healing process means that the there are now a large number of different ways to treat burns. Here's another complication, keloids. And uh, this lady had 
the skin graft there from the left thigh, and uh, the area where the graft was taken, uh, this tremendous overgrowth of scar tissue and keloid formation. We've had a limited success injecting keloids with steroids, and this is a small, much smaller keloid which virtually disappeared after um, steroid injections. Okay, so let's leave skin grafts and burns now and, uh, and dash on. Should we have questions afterwards? If you can hold that one. Fractures and orthopedics. Uh, this is how a patient might come to you in our part of the world if he's got a fracture, a banana plant, which has been tied up there. And uh, he, he's done that because it makes it so much more comfortable. And splinting is extremely important. It reduces pain and complications from from any kind of fracture and uh, if you're not able to treat somebody immediately make sure that they are very well splinted an old cardboard box is often useful you can make a, a splint out of a cardboard box and then uh, plaster of Paris is probably the cheapest way to go after that but remember that plaster of Paris can never correct shortening of a limb if you're seeing shortening then you're going to need some form of traction probably teamwork we're putting on a plaster here uh, somebody's giving an anesthetic and everybody's helping uh, great fun working as a team there in the operating room and then uh, somebody goes home with crutches um, with their plaster cast a pseudarthrosis because there was inadequate immobilization uh, that's a terrible x-ray, but um, this is a fracture of the femur with, with a complete non-union there uh, because of an absence of treatment. Here, this fellow's got a plaster on one side and an external fixator on the other side. I'm not the least bit keen on external fixators. Um, you really have to ensure very, very adequate immobilization, otherwise you'll get non-union. Now, we have to use x-rays, unfortunately. We're using ultrasounds more and more, but ultrasounds are quite useless for fracture work. Um, and we have to use film. You're not using film very much in this part of the world anymore. I don't know. Maybe you're not using it at all. Uh, it's all digital. But uh, the film that we get is of pretty poor quality, and the chemicals we use need to be replaced frequently. And modern x-ray mach machines don't... don't uh, support the kind of voltage fluctuations that we have in our part of the world. So x-rays are always a big headache. Um, and this is the kind of shadow pictures that you get sometimes. Here's a knee and a separation of a lower epiphysis of the femur there. And what are you going to do with something like that? How are you going to treat something like that? Well, you're going to treat it by traction. traction. I mean, I don't know how much traction you're seeing in this part of the world, but it gets us out of a lot of difficulties and uh, put, put this patient under traction. Here's another one. I mean, uh, this bone really is very shattered. You get inside there an operation and it will be more shattered than it looks on the x-ray. So, uh, traction. This is the sort of kind of traction that you would use for a fractured femur in a young child, one to three years of age. Gallows traction and uh, you just have to lift the buttocks up off the bed so that you can get your hand easily underneath and that will give enough weight to um, 
make sure that the two legs are of equal length and leave them like that in a young child, six weeks, and uh, they will be well healed. You can try the same thing or similar for an older child, skin traction, but I think it's very unlikely you're going to get up to 18 years of age. Um, if you've got good benzyl, benzoate, and you've got good sticking plaster, uh, maybe, but usually uh, before 18 years of age, you're going to have to put in a, a Steinman pin. And then something like Perkins traction is what you want to use. Um, these patients are going to be in the, in the ward for a long time, but they'll have a good, out, they'll have a good result. They won't have infection. Uh, they'll have a nice straight leg, two legs of the same length, if you've been measuring carefully, um, and a, a good useful knee as well. This Perkins traction, during the daytime, the, the leg can hang, hung, hang down in the middle of the bed, and then at night, uh, you can put some boards there and bring the leg up to a horizontal position. And uh, they, do, they do very well. Uh, this fellow actually, difficult to see, but he has a scar here. We put in a, an old Kunchner nail, and uh, we've had to put a, a, a plaster ankle piece on him there to stop rotation. Uh, so occasionally you can do uh, internal fixation, but uh, traction, he'd, he'd have an equally good result with traction. And you can see in the background there another form of traction with a, with a Thomas Brown's splint. What are you going to do with something like this? Uh, the knee is completely exposed. You probably do a cross-leg flap there and try and get... Uh, full thickness of skin, subcutaneous tissue to cover that and then do a split skin graft on the area where you, you did the cross leg flap. What about that one? Anybody tell me what the diagnosis is there? This could be trauma, could be trauma, needn't be trauma. This patient has a temperature. What are you going to do with him? Sorry? Cellulitis, yeah, could be. Um, there's a very, very good chance that this is uh, acute osteomyelitis. And uh, you really need to, to drill this. Uh, you need to... Just, just three drill holes there in the, in, the, in the bone. Now, this may not be acute osteomyelitis. It might be something else. Um, but if it is acute osteomyelitis, you want to save this patient from getting chronic osteomyelitis. And that's what we normally see. We, we rarely see it in this acute phase. And so if you have the least suspicion, then I think you ought to drill the, you ought to drill the, the bone. And um, the surprising thing is that we do put pins, we put Steinman pins in people, and we drill holes in people's bones, and they don't seem to get infected. Um, but acute osteomyelitis is a blood-borne infection which gets inside the bone marrow, and if you don't um, allow the pus, which is right in the inside, to come out, then they will get a chronic infection and the piece of bone on the inside will die and uh, they will have a very, very long uh, infective, infective process uh, in, in their leg. It's usually tibia, upper tibia or lower femur and uh, this will be a, a chronic problem if you haven't drilled that bone when you saw acute osteomyelitis. Okay, um, I'm sorry I'm running over time a little bit, but just a couple of ideas about head injuries. Um, this, this fellow was shot. Uh, the bullet 
went right across the top of his head and uh, we were able to close it, close the skin quite easily, but um, this was the result, a herniation of the brain through the, the skin incision. And um, what we did wrong here was we didn't close the dura, dura the dura meter, the outer covering uh, over the, the, the brain, and uh, this allowed this herniation like this. Uh, so you've really got to try and, and close the dura. If, if it has uh, a lot of it's been removed, then you'll have to try and put a patch there, maybe fasciolata patch or uh, some gallia um, from, the, from the scalp there. Eventually we got this thing closed and uh, he was a different, different fellow after that. He has a dense left hemiparesis and that's still there but uh, he is starting to walk and there's um, this physiotherapist uh, giving him a hand there in walking. So head injuries are very, very common. We, we have many, many in the hospital all the time. The vast majority do not need surgery. The three common diagnoses are concussion or a contusion or compression. Now, it's the compression that needs the surgery. There's nothing much you can do about concussion or a contusion. If there is an actual laceration of the brain, then there's nothing much you can do about that. But they, most of them do get better. It's very encouraging. But what you need to be aware of is, is the lucid interval, the interval between the injury and when they become unconscious. Now, you might spot that because of bradycardia, but it's a very subtle difference. Uh, the, the heart slows, but it might slow, say, from 200 beats per minute to 190. And they get some hypertension, but it might be a very little rise, like 130 millimeters of mercury up to 150. But the thing that you've got to look for is deteriorating consciousness. And in a half to two hours, uh, they might become unconscious. Now, I'll give you three examples of this. Uh, number one comes from Equatorial Guinea, an 18-year-old missionary kid on his motorbike is going down the main street in Bata and somebody doored him. They opened the door of their car, he smashed into the door of the car and he seemed to be fine. He had a broken arm. So they took him to the hospital and they were setting his arm in plaster and he started losing consciousness. And so the doctors there realized he had um, a compression problem, he was bleeding, he had an extra dural hematoma, and uh, there was nobody in the hospital there who was capable or willing to do burr holes. So they called for a helicopter in order to take him to Douala for, for surgery, and uh, during the helicopter trip he died. 17-year-old missionary kid. Uh, we had another case, the medical inspector for our area was involved in a road traffic accident. He came into our hospital, not where I was, but uh, uh, down country. And um, he said, I've had an accident. Please call my wife on my cell phone and tell her that I'm okay. And over the next half hour, three quarters of an hour, he became unconscious and he died. And nobody recognized that he was suffering from um, an extra hematoma. The third example um, is a, a fellow, again, 
upcountry, forest area, on a motorbike. His friend was, was driving the motorbike. He was a pillion passenger at the back. Uh, they go around a corner at some speed, and they met a truck that was stopped um, right in the middle of the road, and they crashed into the back of the truck. And uh, the driver of the motorbike was killed instantly. But the passenger at the back survived, but he was unconscious. And he came to us, and we decided we needed to, to make uh, burr holes. And when you, when you make burr holes, you never have all the instruments you need. You've just got to use whatever's available. So I used an osseotome and a hammer, and uh, we found blood. And uh, a few days later, he came round, and uh, he's still alive today. Um, I like to think that I helped him. I'm not sure whether I did or not. But uh, you never have the correct instruments, but you've got to think about making a burr hole on the side which is bruised or lacerated. If one side of the body is stronger than the other, then that's the side where you make your burr hole. If he has a dilated pupil, then you make the burr hole on the side of the dilated pupil. If he shows a less vigorous knee and ankle jerk, then it's on that side that you make the burr hole. And you make it about two centimeters above the external auditory meatus and two centimeters in front of the external auditory meatus, and that's over the meningeal vessels, and that's likely where he's bleeding inside from. So uh, I must stop. Um, I want to emphasize that from our experience, uh, the most valuable thing that we've done in Africa is, has been teaching, 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 trying to pass on to others uh, the kind of experience and, and training that we've had in this part of the world. And I want to encourage you in your prayer life. Um, I do believe that I can operate on two people and one of them heals up beautifully and the other one doesn't. And I don't give healing to anybody. I, I give pills and I operate, but it's God that gives the healing every single time. And we need to be praying much more for our patients. Here's uh, one of our short-term surgeons who's come from Canada who's giving a, a basic surgical skills uh, seminar to some of our young doctors. An anesthetist uh, working with some of our anesthetic nurses. There's my wife. Uh, with an ultrasound machine, again, sharing experience and discussing the case with uh, several others. Um, we have a small video projector and some Saturday evening sessions together. Teaching, I always like to have an African doctor with me when I'm teaching. The situation is getting a little bit better in Bunya at the moment. We have 17,000 United Nations troops there. Things ought to be getting better with all those uh, UN people there. Thank you. And there again is uh, the reference for those books I was talking about, and you can find them online, free, gratis, and for nothing, um, and I really would recommend them. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Questions? Have, have we had any experience with the wound vac? No. Um, but I've heard excellent results. Of course, it's the sort of thing that you're using in this part of the world. And it can be, it can be adapted for our, our part of the world. Um, we have a lot of problems with electrical current and uh, uh, keeping 
vacuum machines going the whole time, 24 hours. We don't have incubators, uh, but it's, it's definitely something to think about, yes. Other questions? Yes, yes, yes. I would, I would recommend uh, an open treatment for, for skin grafts, um, minimal dressings. I mean, maybe if you think it's really beautifully clean and you've got some good dual graft, maybe you're going to put it on a dressing in the operating room. But when you take that one off, then don't put another one on. Leave it open from then on. Thank you. Thank you very much. I've written to them. I didn't get any reply. Um, we probably don't have enough uh, fractured femurs to, to, to go into to that. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's the way to go. Um, your name, please? Um, go and chat with him. If, you, if you're having a lot of uh, fractured femurs, then uh, the, the, there's a way of uh, getting intramedullary nails and, uh, and good quality results from, from that. So talk to him. I mean, the holes for 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 um, traction purposes. Oh, you remove the pin; it heals in no time at all. No, no, no special dressing. Well, you you will put a dressing on it. Yes, sure. And you'll put an iodine dressing around it. I mean, whilst whilst it's there. But it's amazing that you don't get more infection from things like that. In fact, you don't get any infection. Yes, you can, you can remove the outer table sometimes and uh, you'll get some granulations from the spongy bone on the inside there uh, when the outer table has become white and, and, uh, and necrotic and uh, dead. Yeah, you, can't put, you can't put a skin graft on an exposed skull like that. You've got to either rotate some flaps or you've got to take off the outer table and uh, hopefully get some granulations that you can put something on. Other questions? As an alternative to grafting. Questions? Uh, Nancy, did you want to say anything? So I, I did have one 
Um, I hope, the question: If you if you go on a trip, do you bring your own net? Uh, I hope I hope whoever's inviting you will provide you with a net. I hope they will. They shouldn't they shouldn't invite you if there's no net available. Um, we're 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 waiting for a, um, for a vaccine. Uh, Glaxo have got a vaccine which is now approved for human use, but it's not 100% uh, effective by any means. But uh, yeah, I mean, resistance to antibiotics is a huge problem here, and resistance to antimalarials is a huge problem in, in Africa. Thank you. How many times have you had malaria? Uh, how many times have I had malaria? Three, <laughs> Three times. Not, not too many. But I've had typhoid fever and one or two other things as well, <laughs> and hepatitis. Okay. Great. Well, thank you very, very much indeed. Oh, one more question. One more question. Sorry, say again, please. Uh, thoracic tra trauma. Uh, yes, uh, I mean, we see, uh, we see a hemothorax, pneumothorax, uh, a flail chest from time to time. Um, I mean, the, the most important thing to do in many of these cases is chest drain. Uh, that's what's number one treatment. It's not, not terribly common, I wouldn't say. Okay, thank you very, very much indeed. Yes.